So one one thing that um, just want to let you know about is we actually have our Costa Rica missions trip team that are actually flying home today. They're on they're in the plane right now. They should be landing around one thirty or so. So we just pray for their safe travels. They had a wonderful week, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from them. Uh, but we are going to continue our series that we've been calling "Slowing Down." And this has been a series in which we have been examining the pace at which our culture and we run. Oftentimes, like, I love that video that Jimmy and Heather just uh, put together for us because, I, like, that the, the kids trying to skip the stones across the water, that to me feels like how I live life. Right? I'm just, I'm just skipping along, bouncing off of whether it be social media posts or, or headlines of, of news sites that I go to. And I'm just skimming the surface of life I'm ever seeing, but I'm very seldom fully perceiving what I'm even seeing. And, and we ricochet off of relationships and responsibilities alike running from thing to thing to thing. And then in the midst of all of that, we kind of pack in other stuff to kind of fill in every nook and cranny of that space that would be it the telephone, the television, um, you know, social media, whatever it happens to be. And then we come to the end of a day and we wonder why life feels so unbelievably shallow and why we are so exhausted. And if you've been with us for the last several weeks, I would, I would not be surprised if you were beginning to feel as if perhaps our cell phones and other forms of noise like this are the problem, right? Or maybe you've just come to the conclusion that your pastors are technophobes who, who want, you know, we pine away for the days when people just stood around the, the, the village well and had a conversation, right? That's what I want to come back. And that would be the furthest, the furthest thing from the truth. The fact of the matter is I absolutely love my cell phone. I love radio and all those kind of things. However... There are times when I have wondered, is this my problem? Is this, which is for me at this point in my life, the single greatest source of noise, is this the thing that is keeping me from connecting with God more closely and from being more present with my family? Because Jesus did say that if your right hand causes you to sin, then cut it off and throw it away because it's better to go through life maimed than to completely miss out and ultimately um, enter into hell. And, and I, I wonder, should I cut off this 21st century appendage and get myself a dumb phone that, that can only text and, and make phone calls? In fact, I was actually having a conversation with a friend of mine that is a bit of a prophet in my life. He's one of those guys that speaks truth even when you don't necessarily want to hear it. And we were sitting at the corner bakery one morning, and I'm going, man, I just feel like my phone is my issue. If I just get rid of my phone, I feel like I'd have a closer relationship with God, and I feel like I would have um, you know, more margin to be present with my family. <laughs> and he goes, that's an interesting idea. Always always be, aware, be, be wary when somebody begins, and, oh, that's interesting. He goes, you could try that, but I don't think that the phone is your issue. I think that the issue is actually much closer. I think that the issue is inside. And you could get rid of the phone and you would very quickly find yourself gravitating towards other things to distract yourself. 
But the phone is just the way that you're currently distracting yourself from what's inside that you're not wanting to look at. And I'm like, oh, right? I didn't want to hear that. Because quite honestly, I would much rather the issue be out here in my hand that I can just get rid of. Oops. I'd much rather that than recognize the fact that it's actually inside. But the truth of the matter is I knew he was right in that moment. And that's why it hurt more than anything. Because I knew deep down that the issue wasn't my phone. The issue was in my heart. The issue was the insecurity. The issue was the anxiety or the anxiousness of some of the things that I was holding on to. The issue was wanting to be the kind of husband that can allow my wife to open her heart up and be able to sit with her and not get defensive or allowing my children to be in process and that they're not perfect as if their father is perfect and somehow deserves perfect children, right? All of these kind of things that well up. And when I sat with that, I'm like, oh, I don't want to go there. It's much easier just to go to the phone. And that's what we're getting at over the course of this series, is that we are trying to get past surface level where we're just skipping off the top of life and just, you know, going an inch deep and really let the truth of our invitation to be with God sink in. And part of that means stepping into some messiness. And that's what we're going to talk about today. But before we get there, I want to share a video with you. And this was uh, Conan O'Brien is a late night talk show host. Um, He was interviewing a comedian named Louis C.K. a couple of years ago. And in that interview, he asked him, why is it that you've been very outspoken about the fact that you don't want your kids to have cell phones? Why is that? We're going to watch Louis's response, but I just want to let you know that we have edited it to make it appropriate for church. So let's go ahead and watch this video. Just let the sadness stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. 
And I pulled over and I just cried. I cried so much. And, I, and it was beautiful. It was like this beautiful, it's just this, the sadness is poetic. You're, you're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings because because when you let yourself feel sad, yes. your body has like antibodies. It has happiness that comes rushing in, rushing in to meet the sadness. So you're, I was grateful to feel sad, and then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip, you know. And the thing is, because we don't want that first bit of sad, yeah. we push it away with like a little foam. You never feel completely sad or completely happy. You right. just feel kind of satisfied and then you die. <laughs> so that's why I don't want to get a phone from my kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, I think that he puts his finger on something he, that he defines as that empty, forever empty, just that, that sense that there is something underneath, something inside of us that just doesn't feel okay. And, and when we start slowing down, when we start cutting away the noise, we become aware of that. And when that comes, our natural tendency is to go, I don't want to go there. That's uncomfortable. And so it's no wonder then that we, we flip the radio back on in our car. Or why we run to our phones or to something that can distract us. Because there's this, I don't like to be uncomfortable. I don't like to be put in a position where I'm recognizing that everything is not okay in my world. That everything's not okay in my marriage or with my kids or with my work or with me. And when, when I start getting alone and in stillness, that's when those things start to call. You know, a couple of weeks ago, Jeff talked about noise and how important it is for us to cut the noise away. And what we, what we realize, though, is that when you begin to turn off the noise, turn off the radio, turn off your cell phone or just put it down, turn off the television. When you start turning the noise off, suddenly you realize just how loud it is inside your own head and your own heart. And the noise that we hear there often is way more uncomfortable than the noise outside. So we just turn the noise outside back on. And is there something for us to help us walk through that, through what I would, I'm going to define today. I'm going to just use a term that we're going to call those uh, dark valleys of despair. That empty, forever empty feeling. The discomfort of, I'm not sure what's there, but it's uncomfortable and I don't want to go there. Is there a way for us to walk through that in such a way that we can get to the other side of it and recognize that joy that's there as well? Because if we don't do that, then all we end up doing is walking around the outside just to the entrance of those valleys of despair, numbing ourselves out with anything that will take our mind off of it. For me, it's the phone. For you, it could be going to the gym. It could be just staying busy at work. It could be reading. It could be social media. It could be shopping. It could be any number of things. It could be ice cream. Oftentimes, it's ice cream for me. Or alcohol or something else for you. I don't know what it is. But we all have things that we run to when we don't feel good and rather than leaning into it, we lean into that. It becomes like an IV drip 
that just slowly feeds us narcotic that dulls the pain so we don't have to feel the discomfort. And because we don't allow ourselves to feel the discomfort, we never get to move through that valley of despair and realize that there is life on the other side, and it's good. So over the course of these last couple of weeks, we have been exploring practices that we can use that can help us draw deeply into that into those areas so that God can begin to do the work in us that we can't do ourselves. And as we saw last week, Jesus made a regular habit of getting away from the craziness, away from the crowds, away from the demands of life into the wilderness. The word there in, in, in Greek is eremos. It's translated wilderness, desert, lonely places, solitary places. The focus of that word is that Jesus was alone with himself, with his thoughts, and with his God. And it was in those places that we learned last week, far from being places of weakness where he was most vulnerable. And I often look at them that way. When I'm alone, when I'm isolated by myself and God, I feel very vulnerable because all of a sudden, like the fig leaves that I've used to cover over my heart start peeling away. And it doesn't feel good. But far from being a place of vulnerability, or I'm sorry, a place of weakness, it is actually a place of strength. Because it's in those Eremos moments that Jesus was kind of refocused on, A, who am I? I'm my father's son. And what am I about? I'm about his business. So when the enemy starts going, hey, if you really are the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. He's like, no, I know who I am. Leave me alone. If you really are the son of God, then jump because the angels won't let you strike a foot. I know who I am. So I don't have to prove it to you. All right. So you're about, you know, redeeming the world. That's fine. Bend a knee and I'll give it to you. You won't even have to suffer a bit. No, because scripture says, don't bend a knee to anybody but my father in heaven. So get away from me, Satan. You have no authority or power over me. His, the, the time in the Aramos in that solitary place was his strength, not moments of weakness. And if he needed it, just imagine how much more we need it. And yet we recognize that we don't love it. There's a uh, Henry Nouwen is one of those authors that we're probably going to be revisiting several times throughout this series. And he's written something like 49 books, many of which deal with the internal areas of our lives. And this is one thing, this is one of the reasons why solitude is so terrifying to us. He writes, solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It's not a place where we just go to relax all the time. Rather, it is the place of conversion, the place where our old self dies and our new self is born. Anytime we're dealing with the death of our old self, that's not going to be comfortable. He goes on in solitude. I get rid of all of my scaffolding. I love that term. It's the stuff we use to prop our lives up. The stuff we use to prop our worldview up, our identity up, our, our feelings of I'm okay, I'm getting through it. We carve away no friends to talk with, no telephone calls to make, no meetings to attend, no music to entertain, no books to distract me, just me. 
Naked, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothing. And it's in this nothingness that I have to face my solitude. A nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run to my friends, my work, and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I am worth something. Now let me pause for a moment. Because when you hear the term nothing, our minds might start going the way of Buddhism. You know, we need to reach nirvana where we empty ourselves. Uh, hmm, you know, we reach that moment of clarity where I am nothing and I am at one with everything. That's not what he's talking about here. What he is talking about is that when we slow down and stop and when we strip away the stuff that we use to hold up our lives, the scaffolding, we begin to realize That I am not the sum total of what I can do. That my identity is not dependent upon my successes or my failures. Upon my strengths. Upon the alphabet soup after my name or my resume. When we slow down and we strip away the scaffolding, we realize that we, like beggars, have nothing to offer our Father God that earns us our redemption that we come to him naked broken and impure people prodigals who are covered in the muck of our mistakes but the beauty of that is that when we come to him like that we recognize that our relationship with him is a gift of grace because he doesn't treat us as the world treats us according to our worth our value, our talents, or what we can offer. When we come to our Father with our, in our nothingness, He reminds us that it is by grace we've been saved. Through faith, not by works, so that nobody can say, I've done it. This is because I'm good enough. The wisdom, I'll just finish this out here. He says, the wisdom of the desert or the Eremos is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally and unconditionally to the Lord Jesus Christ. What an uplifting conversation for a Sunday morning, huh? Aren't you guys so glad you came to church today? But here's the thing. As a shepherd of this church, I recognize that if we are going to be transformed, if we are going to take hold of that life that is truly life that Jesus offers us, it is going to require us to walk through those dark valleys of despair, to face that junk that is percolating just beneath the surface. And I would be remiss if I did not warn you that if you take that path, it will probably bring some discomfort. And over the next couple of weeks, we are going to grapple with that discomfort. We're going to look at how can we walk through that arm in arm. And, and really, solitude is the way to do that. But today, what I want us to do is, if you have a Bible, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. It's in the very beginning of your Bible. It's about a quarter of the way through. If you find yourself in First and Second Samuel, you still need to go right just a little bit. If you find yourself in First and Second Chronicles or Psalms and Proverbs, go left. 
we're going to look at a story of a guy named, uh, a guy that basically found himself unexpectedly in one of those dark valleys of despair. And specifically, we are going to watch as God walks him through it and brings him out the other side, restores him both to health as well as back to ministry. It's a story of a guy named Elijah. He's a prophet in the Old Testament. And, and for those of you, as you're turning to, to 1 Kings 19, let me just give you a little bit of context for this guy. Elijah lived in a time when the north and the south of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, which is made up of 12 tribes, had a massive schism. The, ten, the northernmost 10 tribes was known as Israel, and the southern two and a half tribes was known as Judah. He was a prophet to the northern ten tribes, which more often than not chose not to glorify Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, chose not to remain faithful to him. So he was a prophet during a pretty tumultuous time in that country's history. And there was a king on the throne during this story that we're going to look at. There's a king on the throne named Ahab who is not a very good king. In fact, he was one of the worst kings in Israel's history, and that's saying a lot. One of the things that made him a truly horrible king is that he was supposed to, as the king of Israel, be God's representative to the people. It was God who was supposed to be in control. He was simply supposed to be the representative, but he didn't even even worship God. He didn't worship Yahweh. Instead, he'd married a woman, who was a Canaanite named Jezebel, and she b- kind of brought her pagan gods, Ashtoreth and Baal, for uh, this guy, Baal, Baal, I think we'll go with Baal. Um, these two other pagan gods, she worshipped them, so he began to worship them. He began to build altars to them, and they actually ate, she had 450 prophets of Baal that ate dinner with her regularly. Well, Elijah's watching this going, okay, the king of this country, this nation that is supposed, that was called by God to be a holy nation set apart, doesn't even honor him and is worshiping other gods. This cannot stand. And so he decides to call out the prophets of Baal. He says, tell you what, Let's have a little, let, let's see who is the true God of Israel. Let's meet at Mount Carmel, the mountain that you prophets worship your God on. Let's meet on your home turf and let's build two altars. You build one to Baal and I'm going to build one to Yahweh, the God of Israel. We will sacrifice an animal, we'll put it on that altar and then we will each call our God to respond by burning up that offering and whichever God responds is the true God of Israel. Well, anytime that prophets want to have like a a prophet off or whatever, I'm not sure what you call that, right? But he's like, anytime that they're ready to step up, they're like, people are like, oh, I got to see this. So there are crowds of people on that mountain. And on this side, in this corner, you got 450 prophets of Baal. And in this corner, you got Elijah. And he goes, by all means, this is your home court. You go ahead and go first. So the prophets of Baal begin dancing around and crying out, Baal, please respond to us. Burn up this offering. 
They don't hear much, so they begin to cut themselves with swords, which is something that they did to try to, I don't know, maybe maybe hoping that the blood would, would kind of awaken Baal to respond. Still nothing. Noon rolls around, and at this point, Elijah, who's just been watching, he starts feeling a little frisky, so he starts going, hey, you know what? Maybe you need to just yell a little louder. Maybe he can't hear you. He might be you know, hard of hearing. Maybe he went on vacation, or, or maybe he's taking a nap. You guys should probably yell out. I love when prophets trash talk with one another. You don't get a lot of it, but when they do, it's fun. And so they do this throughout the day, and it's the sun is almost setting at this point, and nothing has happened. And Elijah finally says, okay, my turn. But you know what? Let's make this a little bit more fun. Would you go grab uh, some buckets of water and just douse the altar? And they end up covering it with water until there's a ring around the altar just totally full of water. And he says, God, show them who you are. And fire falls from heaven and not only consumes the offering, but the altar and all of the water as well. And Elijah's like, don't mess with Yahweh, I say. I'm telling you, he's the man. And then he has those prophets taken into custody, they march him down the mountain into the Kidron Valley, and he puts them to death as false prophets. And it's on the heels of that mountaintop, but probably the peak of a minute. I mean, you have just, you have just stood up to the, the powers that be in the nation that you live and shown them that your God is the only true God in the most powerful way possible. That is a mountaintop experience if I've ever seen one. And it's on the heels of that now that we pick up our story in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now Ahab told his wife Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he'd killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods deal, me, be it, deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I don't make your life like one of them. In other words, you're dead. Elijah, who just faced down 450 prophets, was afraid. And so he ran for his life. He went 70 miles south into Judah, into a place called Beersheba. And there he left his servant, while he himself went a day's journey further into the wilderness, into the Aramos. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under a bush, and he fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, hey, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then he laid down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, hey, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, he ate and drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights into uh, the Sinai Peninsula to a place called Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? 
And Elijah replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites, however, have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. We're going to pause there. The truth is, we are not going to be able to wrap our arms around this whole story in one week, so we're going to take the second half of that story next week. I just want to focus on the part that we just read. And I want to start... By looking at the timing of Elijah's valley of despair moment. Because it's not surprising to me that his valley, he, he finds himself in the valley of despair right on the heels of coming off of a mountaintop experience. I mean, I've experienced this myself. Like, I have a great weekend at church. People are responding. Everybody's excited. You go, oh, it's so good. And you feel like the spirit's here. And then I go home. And the kids are nuts. And Kathy's like, I'm done with them. Take them. And the house is a mess. And it's just like, really? Like, ah, this is, this is it, right? Or, or maybe you are in sales and you had an amazing month. You just kill it. You totally exceed your, your quotas. And then you wake up one morning and it's the beginning of a new month and you realize all of those, you know, all of that excess that you brought in, it's wiped off. You get to start over from the ground floor again one more month. Some of the people coming back from Costa Rica today are going to experience this very thing very powerfully because for the last week they have seen God show up. They've been out of their comfort zone. They've seen some amazing things and being used really powerfully. And now all of a sudden they're going to come back into their regularly scheduled life and it's going to just feel dull. It's going to feel like Gosh, I felt, I, I felt close to God there. And I come here and now I just have all of the issues and all of the busyness and all of the regular stuff that I normally do that's just like, ugh, dull, is here. And they're going to really have a hard time. Some of them are going to walk through, and they don't even realize it yet, they're going to walk through a valley of despair, specifically because they've just come off of such a high mountain. And the truth of the matter is, this is a natural flow of life. Elijah watches in chapter 18, God do some unbelievable things. Watches them show up powerfully. And the moment he gets down off the mountain, he hears Jezebel say, you're dead. And so we read in verse 3, when he heard that, Elijah was afraid. Now that word that's translated afraid is pretty tame. The Hebrew word there is really getting at he is terrified, which I find so ironic given what's just transpired. But he feels vulnerable. He feels frustrated. He's overwhelmed with emotion. And so he gets his servant, like his partner, goes, hey, let's get out of here. And they flee 70 miles south into Judah as far away as he can travel as quickly as possible from Jezebel and Ahab. And when he gets to Beersheba, he says, okay, stay here. I just need to go spend a little bit of time alone with God. And he wanders another day's journey into the wilderness. And when he gets there, he finds some random bush, sits down in the shade of it, and and basically prays the most fatalistic prayer you could ever imagine. This is in verse 4. He says, I have had enough, God. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I mean, seriously, look at everything I've just done. 
And this is the thanks I get for. I'm done. What's the point? What's it all for? So he lays down and he falls asleep. Now what I want us to notice in this story is what God does not do. God does not guilt Elijah. What? You call yourself a prophet? And you're falling asleep with all of these emotions? Get up and pray, boy. He doesn't do that. Instead, he allows Elijah to sleep. And then, after he's had a good long nap, he wakes him up and says, hey, here's some food. He gives him some food, some water, and he lets him go back to sleep. The beginning, the first part, the very first step in Elijah's restoration is rest. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, that's not a very spiritual answer. The first step in our restoration is rest? Think about this for a minute. I mean, you might be thinking, the first step should be prayer. Like, we got to be praying. you got to pray a lot. And you probably should read the Bible. What part of the Bible should you read? That's what I need to hear. What, what, what's, the, what's the chapter, what's the verse that I should be kind of dwelling on during this time? But sometimes, and you know what this feels like, when you reach the end of your rope, when you are physically or emotionally drained, what we need more than anything is rest. We need sleep. We need to care for our bodies Sometimes that looks like nourishing them, giving them some hydration, and then going to sleep. Because, and this is something we talked about last week, when we don't take care of ourselves, instead we start running to other things that are cheap facsimiles of that rest. What we really need is rest, but instead we go toward things that can just help numb out that feeling of exhaustion. Maybe it's binge-watching something on Netflix. Maybe it's... That, that one's yours, yeah? Um, maybe it's reading voraciously. That one's mine. Kathy knows. Anytime I find myself finishing one book and starting the next one without even a, a pause, I'm kind of... I'm like one of those people that when they break up with somebody, they feel really anxious until they're back in a relationship. I'm just that way with books. When I don't have a book to read to kind of numb myself out, I get anxious until I find another one. But for you, maybe it's food or activity or alcohol or something else. Maybe it's just drowning yourself in the social media feed. And it, it, it feels good in the moment, but you all know when that's the stuff that we gravitate towards. In the end, it doesn't actually sate that hunger inside for rest. All it does is ultimately leave us feeling a little bit worse in the end. But we do it because we know something's not right and we need to do something about it. Well, in this instance, Elijah models, it's okay to rest. And this week, I simply want to encourage you to consider, how have you been feeling lately? What is the state of your heart and your body? 
Have you been exhausted or are you are you getting enough rest? And and look at your exhaustion for a moment. Is it kind of the good tired that comes from a good hard day's work or a good exercise? Or is it more that fatigue that comes from just never letting the flywheel of your life or your mind slow down and you're constantly running from thing to thing to thing? And the only time you stop is to kind of numb out and check out. And I would ask yourself, I would also encourage you to consider what are the things that you run to in that moment when you feel fatigued? Are you going to things that fill you up, that that help you to rest, or are you running to things that simply help you check out? For Elijah, God recognized that what he needed, and by the way, there is a time and a place for prayer, and there is a time and a place for reading the Bible. I am not suggesting that those things just get jettisoned. What I am suggesting is that sometimes, particularly when you get to that point where you are physically and emotionally exhausted, it is okay. It, in fact, it is imperative to rest. And what I'm finding lately is that my ability to be present with God and my family in the morning begins at night by choosing to go to bed rather than choosing to stay up later and read something or watch something. And so as Kathy and I have been going to bed earlier, I've been finding my body naturally waking up earlier, and I have had some wonderful times with God, but it began the night before. So, Elijah falls asleep. God lets him sleep, and he wakes him up, gives him some nourishment, gives him some hydration, lets him go back to sleep. After a time, an angel wakes him up again. We read in verse 7, The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for this journey is too much for you. So God is taking care of his physical needs. And so Elijah got up and ate and drank. And strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights south until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and he spent the night. Now, because most of us are not familiar with the geography of Israel, this doesn't mean a whole lot to us. So let's just pause for a moment. Let me explain. Can we throw the map up for just a moment? This might be difficult for you to see. But up here in the far, uh, up here on the right, that body of water that you see right there is the Sea of, no, that's not, actually, that's the Dead Sea right there. The Sea of Galilee would be even a little bit further up. But that right where the, right where the red line begins, and it's probably difficult for some of you to see, that, um, that is Beersheba. That's where he begins his journey. And he goes south into the Sinai Peninsula to a mountain that here is called Horeb. But it's also known by a different name in Scripture. It's also known as Mount Sinai. It's a place where God met with Moses and the people of Israel. Where he gave them his Ten Commandments, but more importantly, he established a covenant with them. It's a place that the people of God often met with their God. And that's where Elijah feels compelled to go. Now, as the crow flies, that's about, that's about 191 miles from Beersheba down to, to, to the Sinai Peninsula and to the Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb. Since he takes about 40 days and 40 nights to get there, that means that he's traveling on average about five miles or less a day. Now, if, if he was traveling even, let's say, eight, 
eight hours, ten hours a day, that means he's traveling about half a mile an hour. This is not a fast pace. In fact, many of us would consider it to be a painfully slow pace. If, if anybody who was used to walking, and let's not forget that he had just traveled 70 miles from you know, the north of Israel down to Beersheba. This man is used to walking. He probably could have done this in, in about a week or 11 days, but he took 40. The fact of the matter is Elijah is not in a hurry. He is slowly walking to the mountain of God. And and we don't read that God says much of anything during this time, which means that Elijah is alone in the Aramos with his thoughts and his feelings. And he's just processing. And And he's working through the entire range of emotions that must have come up for him. There's there's frustration. Why on earth after this am I suddenly having my life, you know, endangered? There's 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 anger. God, I'm mad at you. I mean, seriously, there's no one else. Why am I alone in this? Why am I the only one? There's sadness. I grieve where, where this country is right now. I grieve where my people are. We were, we were called to be a, a, a holy people, set apart to magnify and glorify our God. And look at what we're doing. They're trying to kill me. And there's doubts. God, does this even matter? Yeah, I, I've given you my life. I've invited you to help yourself to it. Does any of this even make a difference? And so he's wrestling with this all of these emotions. And he comes to Mount Sinai and he, and he climbs up the mountain and he finds a cave and he crawls into the cave and he collapses on the ground and he passes out. This is a man who's exhausted. This is a man who has reached what we would call today burnout. And he's now had 40 days to grapple with his emotions, 40 days to become familiar with them. And so we read in verse 9, the second half of it, the word of the Lord came to him there in that cave. What are you doing here, Elijah? What's compelled you to make this journey down here? And Elijah, who has now had 40 days to process through his feelings. Remember, the first time he talked to God under that bush right outside of Beersheba, Elijah, all he knew was the emotions. All he knew was, I'm done. Kill me. Right? It was fatalistic. It was overwhelming. It was just this jumble. And he was just kind of skipping over the surface. He goes, I don't want it. I don't want to go there. But now he's had 40 days of walking through this valley of despair. It's been uncomfortable. It's been ugly. There's been some deep woundedness that he's identified. And now he speaks it. He names it into the light. Verse 10, he replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. I have been faithful and zealous for you. The Israelites, your people rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altar and they put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they're trying to kill me too. Still raw, very raw. But it's honest. 
And what I appreciate about Elijah is that he is courageous to speak into the light what he feels in his heart. And he's had now the time to kind of process it. Have you guys ever had one of those moments where you're just feeling so overwhelmed that you just kind of say something and it's oftentimes very hurtful. It's oftentimes very reactionary because you're just in the moment and you're seeing red and you just kind of say something. You don't mean it. If you actually thought about it, you're like, that's the opposite of how I feel. But in this moment, I just feel and I have to do something. So, die, right? And your family gets Vesuvius. You just blow your top. Earlier on in my marriage, I, I patched some walls because I... Bah! Right? I just could But when you get a little bit of distance, and this is something I've had to learn in my marriage, when I start feeling that rumbling happening, I need to pull myself away. And I need to get some time alone. And it helps the pressure to subside. But it also helps me to begin to process what's going on underneath. Sometimes it takes half an hour. Sometimes it takes a whole lot longer than that. But when I'm able to do that, when Kathy and I are in the middle of it and we're fighting and it's 10 o'clock at night and you know nothing good happens after that. Like it's just we are going to end up just yelling at one another and it's going to be ugly. When we have been able to say, hey, I love you, but can we table this for the night? And we sleep. We wake up the next morning. Suddenly, you don't even remember what you were fighting about. And, 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 and you're like, I'm so sorry for, here's my, I'm so sorry for this. And she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. And it's just like, done. Oh, that was easy. But it took distance. It took a little bit of time to rest and, and reconnect. And this is what Elijah has just walked through is 40 days walking through the darkness of that junk and coming to the point where he can finally kind of get the fingers of his, of his, around that, that kernel of pain that he's feeling. And now he drags it into the light and says, fine, you ask, you get, here you go. And he lays it in front of God. Now there is one thing to articulate what we've already worked through. Right? Oh, I used to, to struggle with anger. Right? I, I used to struggle with insecurity. I used to have questions about my faith. Yeah. I, I used to struggle with addiction. That's one thing to talk about stuff that's in the past. It is yet another thing. And, and it takes far more courage to articulate something that we are working with real time when the emotions are still very raw. But Elijah is willing to do that. And it takes one of two things to bring somebody to that point where they're willing to do that. Either A, you really trust the person that you're being vulnerable with. Or B, you just don't give a darn anymore. Yeah, fine, whatever. Here's where I'm, here's where I'm at. Because I'm just done. And I'm not sure which of, it, which of those it is for Elijah that brings him to this point. Maybe a little bit of both. But he says, God, here's where I'm at. And he lets him have it. And I am so grateful that he's willing to be real. Because if we're not real with ourselves and if we're not real with God, then we cannot begin to heal. If we can't drag that pain out into the light, then 
then we're not, if we can't even acknowledge it to ourselves, let alone to God or another person, then we can't begin to deal with it. Instead, we cover it up. We paper mache over it with busyness and other stuff. We numb ourselves out with that IV drip of noise and we go on with life. But the truth of the matter is it will continue to leak out into every area of our lives. It will affect our marriage. It will affect our work. It will affect our self-image. It will affect the things that we run to. It will affect the way we treat people and the way we view people. So we can't just ignore it. And we're going to look next week at what God does with this very raw man who has reached his end and how he brings him through that valley of despair and ultimately turns him around, kind of gets him back on his feet and sends him back into the fight. We are going to look next week at the ways that God speaks into our lives and how we can begin to recognize his voice. But for today, let's just back up for a moment. I just want a couple of things that I appreciate about this story of Elijah that speak to where we might be at in our own lives. The first thing is I love the reality of this story that a man of God who represents him and who can stand before 450 prophets and say, my God is the only true God and I'll prove it, was also he also had that underlying stuff where he just came to the end of himself because it gives me permission to come to the end of myself. I appreciate the fact that he was willing to lean into his junk and work through it. Because oftentimes I feel like the way to honor God, or at least the, the, the thinking is, if you have doubts, if you have questions, if you have junk that you notice there, that's not honoring to God. That's not faith. So we try to cover it over and just pretend we're all good. And you come to prayer in God and you're like, your, your world is falling apart. And you're like, God, you're so good. Thank you for loving me. And it's like, ah, prayer is not a time to be good. It's a time to be honest. God, and this is something we're going to talk about starting in Easter and on after we're done with this series. God is a big enough God to handle our full range of emotions. He can handle our doubts. He can handle our anger. He can handle our sorrow. He can handle our junk way better, in fact, than we can. And so if we hope to not just stay at the mouth to the valley of despair and continue to numb ourselves out as we just walk circles around it. If we actually want to walk through it and ultimately get to the other side so that as Louis pointed out in, in that, that clip we watched, where we get to the other side and we realize that there is joy, profound joy beyond the valley of despair. If we hope to get there, we must trust God to walk us through it. Elijah was willing to actively move towards God as he processed. He wasn't just sitting on his couch going, oh, I'm done, I'm going to eat pork rinds and watch Man in the High Castle, right? Who eats pork rinds? I'm sorry, that's a terrible... Come on, appreciate that. All right. For me, it's like mint chocolate chip ice cream, goldfish crackers, and a glass of, of really cheap wine. I mean, that's just me right there, sorry, you know? I'm not afraid of a box. Um, so it is okay for us to have that junk there. Secondly, it is okay for us to rest. 
And sometimes what you need to give yourself permission for right now is to stop going and simply rest. And maybe the the only discipline you need to get out of today is tonight, after you get the kids in bed, after you're done with all of your responsibility, shut the TV off, close the book, turn off, close the computer, just go to bed and see how if you give yourself a couple of days of that rhythm, see the way it has an effect on your mornings and the rest of your day. It's been a profound impact for us. And then finally, when we have the time to process, when we can begin to grapple with what's underneath, God is a big enough God to handle that. And in fact, if we hope to heal, the first thing we need to do is just get real with him and with ourselves. We're going to come back to this next week. But I simply want to pray for us because I, and I want to actually want to close with this a quote from a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal. Can you throw that up there for a second? This is just a profound statement. He said, all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room alone. All of humanity's problems. Now he's a philosopher. I'm not sure if, if, you know, this is, but all of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit in a room alone. Because when we are alone, when we have cut and clipped away all of the noise, that's when the internal noise becomes most pronounced. And when we begin to hear that noise, oftentimes it's messy, oftentimes it's raw, oftentimes it's, it's hard to wrap our arms around. And so a lot of us, especially here in Western culture, have this tendency to just hold it at arm's length and run from it. Turn the radio in the car back on, turn the TV back on, crack the book, go on the phone, whatever it is, we run to those things because it's way more comfortable momentarily than just being alone with God and ourselves and our feelings. But we are not simply after surviving at the mouth to the valley of despair. We are about that life that is truly life. That's what we're after. And the only way to get it is sometimes to walk right through the heart of that valley of the shadow of death, trusting our shepherd to guide us through. Sometimes he's going to make us lie down in a green pasture. I find it ironic that he has to make us do that. Sometimes he's going to lead us beside streams of quiet water where we can be replenished. And re- but ultimately, this is about restoring our soul. That's what we're after. And we are not going to get it by trying to run at the pace of the rest of society. And so I'll close this morning the same way I've closed the last two times. With this invitation from Jesus. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for for loving imperfect people like us and inviting us to come just as we are. We don't have to go and clean ourselves up. We don't have to pretend we are somebody else or that we have it all together. You know us intimately. And so this morning we come as we are and as the worship team comes forward and we go into a time of worship, we simply want to be with you and we want to practice a posture even right now of being vulnerable, 
and still. Would you help us to see the state of our own hearts? Would you give us the courage to tune out the noise, to turn it off so that we can begin to tune in not only to you, but to what's underneath the surface, the noise that's inside. Would you give us the courage to begin to take those first steps this week into the valley of despair and to grapple with that empty, forever empty? And I pray, Father, that you would walk with us every step of the way, and that we, you would restore the joy of our salvation. You would help us to find that life that is truly life. Jesus, we pray this in your name. Amen.